1: That's the second
2: time it's gone on. They never go home. they never go home. they never go on those, those, that's, that's, right. that's, yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that,
3: really. Oh, you can laugh, have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be
4: like
2: me.
1: You don't know what you're talking about. Well, yeah. if you want to, to stay alive for oh, six, six days, i there. I'd say it to you, I'll say it oh, to you now. I'm down to and we'll see them, What you doing down
0: here, you show me, man. Hello there, and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Owen Murph and Ken are all here. Hi, guys. Hello there, And all, I hope, very, very excited about a big week ahead. It starts tonight with the Euro 2016 play-off second leg against Bosnia, and it's going to end with the publication of the Second Captain's Sports Annual Volume 1. Breaking news, Murph. Finally, somebody, somebody out there has allowed me to write about my favourite WWF finishing moves from the late 1980s. This has not been... It's a a scandal that this has not been committed Mm. to print before now.
4: Mm. You should have set up a blog, really, (laughs) Uh, many years ago. Uh, People could have been... Well, I mean, you've you've always been upfront about your uh, preferences in this area... Mm. But it is, nevertheless, nice to memorialise it. Sure, yeah. Thankfully,
0: that's only a few words of a a very substantial book. That is just 15 pages of (laughs) that. Yeah. There's Uh, some actual proper journalism in there. uh,
4: There is indeed. uh, Well, most of it courtesy of the only proper journalist here. (laughs) I'm looking at you, Ken. Uh, But, uh, yeah, no, uh, there's a brilliant piece on Conor McGregor. Ken interviews Damien Duff. Yeah. Uh, Get some brilliant stuff out of Damien Duff. There is actually loads of really, really good stuff in it, to be honest. At Home Uh, with David O'Doherty. Uh, yes. I don't know if that
0: qualifies as the serious journalism part or not <laughs>
3: <That's>, we <well, there, laughs> would we'll have there,
0: to ask there David about
4: of, that there are moments of pathos in there uh, uh, there's but. a David
0: Squires cartoon in there that you don't want to miss out I know quite a few of you look at his cartoons read his cartoons I yeah, read a you, cartoon, you'd read a cartoon. in uh, in the Guardian, and he's done a brilliant one on the goings on at Abbottstown. Uh, yeah, sure so no, interested. it's
4: it's, right. it's brilliant stuff. It's uh, it's uh, the, well, I mean, it really, it's the perfect gift for your for the the man or indeed lady in your life.
0: It's all printed and produced in Ireland as well. It will be available from Easons and all good bookstores. Already, it's available to pre-order online on secondcaptains.com. We've only got a limited number of these, a uh, number of limited number of copies. Fifteen euro ninety nine is the price, which is really good value. I think I mean, the only way you'll know whether you agree or not, is by going on there and picking one up for yourself or for somebody else.
4: Yeah, and you'll uh, you'll get an idea of uh, uh, when you go on the website, you'll get a sneak preview of a couple of pages so you'll see it's uh, it's brilliantly put together and all the rest. So, yeah, there you go.
0: Ken, confidence levels about tonight?
3: Pretty high, Owen. Yeah. Um, maybe I should just keep saying low because it seems <laughs> to work. Um, I don't believe that it really works that way, though. I don't think there is actually don't any connection. Do you think you
0: transmit any positive or negative vibes? I don't believe
3: there see? is any connection between what I say on this podcast and what happens in Ireland's qualifiers. <laughs> Even though it does look as though every time I expect them to lose, they win. Every time I expect them to win, they lose. Yeah. I can say that I expect them to win tonight. <laughs> so... Uh, and get to go to the uh, European Championships.
0: We're going to talk plenty about the game. We'll also chat to Simon Cooper. I'm sure you may well have read one, one or two of Simon's pieces over the last couple of days. Obviously, a regular voice on, on the show. we have spoken to him a good few times over the years. He's been living in Paris for 13 years. Wrote an amazing account of events at the Stade de France on Friday. He's been talking about it over the weekend. And really, we want to talk, in part at least, about the fact that England-France is going ahead at Wembley, for one thing. And there are a lot of these very noble-sounding ideas that football can now bring everyone together and make some, some sort of a huge impact or some sort of a meaningful impact on what's going on in the world. <laughs> I'm not sure whether it can or it can't, but we'll talk to Simon about that and plenty more besides. Let's get into Kennedy's report on sport.
3: So uh, Jacques Lambert is the organizer of Euro 2016 and he has been on the radio in France this morning to say that uh, wondering whether Euro 2016 must be cancelled is playing the game of the terrorists. The risk went up one level in January it has just gone higher. Uh, We will take the necessary decisions for Euro 2016 to take place in the best safety conditions. Security in stadiums works well the risk is more in the streets in spontaneous gatherings. So um he's you know addressing an obvious fear that everybody has with you know you, you had terrorists coming to try to attack a football match on saturday ultimately not succeeding but definitely trying uh, trying to get into the stadium into a packed stadium with a, with a bomb or a number of bombs um you know when you look at when you when you sort of look at history you can't find many examples of people trying to do this you know this is not something attack,
0: that uh, live sporting events. No, doesn't you know, really... Munich, obviously, in, in 1972. Slightly different thing. No, obviously as in, no. yeah, it wasn't while an event was... It uh, wasn't at a stadium. Uh, yeah. a, in um, the Olympic um, Village. In, yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah.
3: There was Atlanta in 96 um, when there was a pipe bomb in the Centennial Olympic Park, which was a sort of piece of the Olympic infrastructure. Um, that was a kind of a nutcase. Uh, Eric Rudolph was his name, who thought that he was... By planting a pipe bomb. He was like a former US soldier who didn't believe in abortion on demand. He thought abortion on demand was very wrong, and the best way to demonstrate its wrongness was to try and blow up uh, people at the Olympic Games. So, you know, obviously, you're talking about a guy who's kind of uh, acting alone, got a few mental problems, uh, knows how to make a bomb. You know, a dangerous person. Well, there's not really much you can do about that. You just sort of hope that that doesn't happen. This thing that happened on Friday was quite different. This was like um, a lot of people. I mean, you mentioned the Munich thing. The Munich, that that was that was obviously an, an attack at the Olympic Games. It was a specifically targeted attack. I mean, they had take they kidnapped Israeli athletes, also killed a policeman in the in the course of carrying out the operation. But it was. Uh, you know, they, they captured Israeli athletes and issued like a list of political demands. So there was a kind of a, we want you to release, you know, a couple of hundred prisoners in Israel or whatever. There was a, there was a sort of a, you know, I'm not going to say logic, but like there was a kind of a, um, you know, it was like a, a kidnapping. You know, we're going to take a hostage uh, because we want you to do this, and if you don't do that, well then. Well, we know that actually, and pretty much everybody involved ended up uh, dying. They killed all the hostages and ended up being killed themselves. Um, but you know, there was a kind of a—you you can a see how that makes. Motivation there, in, yeah. You can see how you can understand. Okay, well, this is what they wanted. This is how they tried to achieve it. It was a terrible uh, plan, and everybody ended up uh, being killed. This thing on Friday is just—I don't really—I don't really understand. You know, I mean, it's not—it's not like the the Atlanta case where you've got a. A guy who's, who is, you know, you know, kind of, what in America, what in the American cliche is referred to as a lone nut. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, it's not like that. It's actually a group of people who get together and plan out a pretty sophisticated operation. The aim of which is simply just to kill as many people as possible. Yeah,
0: I mean, even the term, the, the use of the term "hostages," which you hear a lot. I mean, they wouldn't, they weren't going to go into that stadium looking for hostages. It doesn't look like. They no, they just wanted to go, go and, in kill and kill as, as many, many people, people as, as possible. Could,
3: yeah. on on TV.
0: So there's not even like you're saying this protracted set of negotiations then that happens, and well, this is what you want. We don't negotiate, and all these things that go along with that. It's just just like carnage. You, yeah,
3: there you go. Uh, and I mean, uh, obviously, I mean, I was writing today about it in the. Our um, Times that like you know I remember going to the London Olympics and there was such a massive security kind of uh, operation around the London Olympics so big in fact that they that the G4S who were meant to do the security the private firm who were meant to do it admitted a couple of weeks before oh we actually can't do this I'd forgotten about that yeah yeah. so they ended up having this army doing it and um, and so you, so every time you went to the Olympics, there was like tons of soldiers kind of swarming around. There was a little
0: bit of unease when that story came out, wasn't there? Did that story actually come out at the time? It came did, out, you know, it came they out they to-
3: like beforehand. Yeah, it did, because they had to They had to get the soldiers in. It was like, who, who's going to do it? With the G4 like, oh, actually, we can't, uh, we're not able to fulfill the obligations we signed up to. So they got the army in, and it kind of, it, it does make it a bit, you're kind of looking around thinking, see all these men with guns and uniforms thinking to yourself, this is, you know, this isn't great when you see that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you're also thinking, is this really? Is the Olympic Games really a realistic target for this type of attack? You know, I mean, why would anybody do that? It's kind of like, if you're attacking the Olympic Games, how do you make a case that you're on the side of of right? You know what I mean? It's a difficult one. It's like so obviously. It would so, be so obviously wrong from you know every perspective that why would anybody do it because you because you see you think that well you know terrorists also have political aims you know no, nobody just does it for the hell of it uh, that there's always some type of rationale and if if in order to um, to advance your political agenda you have to commit something which is obviously an atrocity or an abomination in just in that nobody can possibly defend. How do how does that how does that work for you? Doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? Well, I suppose it doesn't have to make sense. You know, the the thing on Friday shows that it really just doesn't have to make any sense um the actual
4: uh Well the the more egregious the the act, uh the the bigger the reaction and what they're actually looking for is the the reaction that they're getting. Yeah. Which is, and you know, so I mean, w- what you're looking for is a, n- a narrative that you can uh, hang your hat on, i.e., we are Palest- Palestinian terrorists and we're going to kidnap Israeli athletes. Like, that makes sense at some, you know, kind of some conventional yeah, level. A, like, say, if you're looking at. Oh well, there's going to be a fixture in Euro 2016 that, for whatever reason, is going to be more politically charged than another, i.e., France are playing Belgium in the immediate, in you know, within six months of mm. what's happened in the last couple of weeks. When of course that's there is it, the whole idea of it being oh, there's going to be uh, uh, three codes, you know, like code red, code amber, code green for games in Euro 2016. That's not what it's going to be like at all. Mm. There's going to be a general. Uh, suspicion that this could happen, but you, if you're looking for a narrative, there's not going to be one.
3: No, there there isn't. It could, it could be as you know, Hungary against Sweden, whatever. You know, they could they could equally be crusader nations. I mean, any of the countries in the uh, who will be participating in the Euros, you could look at it and say, well, they're they've done a bit of crusading in their time. I mean, it would be possible. I mean, that was I, I, I used that word because that was the word that was. Um that was one of the words in the statement uh, that was put out claiming responsibility for when they were talking about Crusader nation to two Crusader nations, France and Germany, you know? It's just totally insane. So so you can't really the that that idea that, well, this kind of represents a sort of a safe zone. Well, not a safe zone exactly, but it's kinda of like who would attack a sporting mm. event because they're obviously going to be the bad guy if they do that? Like, it's it's kind of, well, that's just really an idiotic and naive way yeah, of thinking. The same
4: people who would attack a restaurant or attack a uh, music event. The idea yeah. is that sport isn't, there's a ring of uh, safety around a sporting it event is, is just ridiculous. Stupid,
3: yeah. yeah
0: well, is it impossible to believe, what what are we at now, we're middle of November. This tournament takes place in a few months. Yeah. It's not even something that's a few years down the line here the pain will still be being felt massively by everybody in Paris. And I'm sure the narrative will change, will slowly change to, well, we, this tournament has to go ahead. In fact, it's already being said, this tournament has to go ahead and people do have to travel and, and not give in. As you were saying, the uh, people organizing are saying that this would be giving in in some way to the the, the terrorists to, uh, to even think about not not coming or for it not to go ahead but is it impossible to foresee a tournament that will be in any way normal that will be similar to other major championships given that there can't but be a certain amount of fear in the air there
4: it's the new normal I think the new normal is London 2012 and are you know soldiers on the street guaranteeing your safety at a at a sporting event and and possibly that's, an extreme version of that yeah and yeah. It's, instead of instead of instead uh, of Kind of wincing at it, or, or, you know, I I don't think anyone will think this isn't necessary. Uh, I think that it's the it's that's the new normal now.
3: It completely is. I mean, with London twenty twelve, there had already been a link to terrorism established by the fact that the day after they won the bid, that was the day of the seven seven bombing. So there was this there was kind of an immediate psychological link between this tournament and, you know, the this these uh, this type of attack. But in fact, nothing happened, which was which was great uh, with this instance there has been this I mean this these terrible things that happened in Paris specifically targeted at a f- at a football match specifically targeted at one yeah. you would have to say you know you'd expect you'd expect something to happen Next summer, and I don't think you, I don't think you've had a sporting event before where that's been the case. Well, you know, whether can I, could I, nevertheless see a kind of a normal type of thing playing out, albeit with this kind of dread hanging over. it? Yeah, absolutely, I could because that's the nature of the. It's, it's just the nature of. And
0: that's is that the best case scenario though that the, it does go ahead. Yeah, this there's, there's I mean, feeling of dread around it, but that's unavoidable.
3: I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it is unavoidable. unfortunately, this is the this is how you know this type of thing ruins everything for everybody to an extent but you know people are able to it's you know like the it's, it's sort of survivor mentality I mean the reality is that the vast majority of people survive even the worst uh, type of such such an attack you know what I mean so yeah. that's the experience that everybody who's still alive has is of being a survivor I mean it's like uh, when they used to think that uh, you know when when uh, aerial bombing was first Invented, and it was used in, you know, in in the Spanish Civil War, and they, it used to be thought that this would be a weapon which would completely devastate uh, the population of uh, countries against which it was used. That nobody would be able to stand up to this idea of, um, you know, a random like a kind of death falling out of the sky could fall on your house. You're not nobody in the city is safe. Uh, that this is a weapon of such terror that in fact. It would break the morale of cities that was the thinking at the time and then when it was actually put into practice uh, you realize that in fact everybody who's still alive at the end of you know a city being bombed thinks well you know that's it's it's not that dangerous you know what I mean yeah. so every so they're the natural response of uh, of the survivors the people are able to focus very much on their on still being alive and it troubles you to think too much about death. So it's not the kind of thing that tends to really stay in your mind. Life is a way of being able to stay in your mind a lot more. So I think, yeah, it could be, you know, normal. I think there will be a lot of soldiers. Yeah. And uh, and I don't think anyone will really be, be surprised by that.
0: Will we talk football?
3: Yeah, Specifically
0: I mean, Martin O'Neill and uh, his thoughts ahead of tonight.
3: Ireland uh, are playing Bosnia tonight. Bosnia, who failed to impress in their uh, in the home game. I mean, it was a weird game. It was a weird, um, foggy game. I mean, I don't know how.
0: How was the game played there? It was one of the Bosnian players afterwards said, oh, yeah, well, uh, yeah, it's it's just this time of year. There's just a lot of fog around here. It's uh, it's in a valley, of course. This, this always happens. <laughs> yeah. Already you're playing in a stadium, which I don't know how UEFA uh, uh, permit playoff venues to be that small when they do have a bigger stadium. I presume they've got a stadium available in Sarajevo, don't they?
3: Um, yeah, pretty decent oh, sized I stadium see, they
0: must um, I'm going to make that assumption for the purpose of making <laughs> this argument Ken uh, but then yeah so you're, you're playing this tiny little stadium that's fine That's if it's allowable it's allowable uh, but then there's a fair chance that this massive fog is going uh, to going to descend and to be honest it was just a, a surprising moment that you come back after half time and suddenly well I don't know maybe it was being mentioned on Twitter I, I wasn't on Twitter at the time so it's coming back they're talking away about about the game on the panel and in a TV studio, and then suddenly you're thinking, "Hang on, this what is is that just a problem with the camera?" It just takes a couple of seconds, and you're, "No, no, that's a, a massive fog," and it only gets worse. And you're thinking, "If that's happened over the last fifteen minutes, this game is in trouble." I mean, yeah. it probably should have been abandoned.
3: Really, it should have been totally. I mean, it would have been if it had been a normal game. I think, but they were just like, nobody wants this game abandoned. Seriously, just finish it. Nobody wants to have to. Organised to play the rest of this game tomorrow. You know what I mean? Just nobody wanted that, so it was kind of like, yeah, I think we can, I think we can just about get on with this game. But I mean, it was the conditions were ridiculous. I mean, you literally couldn't see Brady's goal. I couldn't see it. I just I became aware of it from hearing the Ireland supporters all cheering, and then Robbie Brady sort of ran out of the mist, <laughs> and it was like, oh, we are. the kind like of scored
4: quite similar, to like to the end of uh, you know, Gangs of New York. Where Daniel Day Lewis and Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, characters come out of the fog, stab each other, and then run back into the mist. <laughs> that was basically what I, I I kind of thought of about halfway through the second half. This is what's going on here. It's just kind of like uh, attacks disappearing and then appearing out of nowhere. And then Darren Randolph has the, ball, has the ball in his hands. You know, Darren Randolph makes this brilliant save, and I and we literally had no idea. Or what Darren happened. Randolph, yeah. I thought
3: Making it was. Great I thought it was song. a bit unfair. Um, the Bosnia. Disappeared completely in the fog, whereas we were quite obvious in our white <laughs> shirts. But I mean, there was another. There was other things that was happening. Like, say, for you could just about make out the advertising hoardings on the far side because they were like electronic and shining through the the fog. And at one point, and you could see sometimes players silhouetted against them. And at one point, th- there appeared to be basically the flash on the left side of the field for Bosnia. What is what is going on with this guy? He is terrifying. Uh, and it turned out to be just a continental ad that was there. There was something, some kind of rolling graphic. You know the way you see them at the Premier League. There's some vitality. I think they do ads which where you have like a little, like a, like a sausage dog that runs along the advertising hoarding. <laughs> it looks, it's kind of, it's it's kind of frightening to see because it it's a sausage dog and, and it's about the size of a hippopotamus. You know, in in uh, in terms of the size it is and the graphic thing. But obviously, you're like when there's no fog, it's yeah. it's okay. Anyway... um,
0: You know our secret weapon, though, the reason that we got the away goal. uh, What
3: what is our secret weapon?
0: Our new addition to... I mean, this is never officially confirmed, but we appear to have a new addition to our coaching team. Robbie Keane. Oh, yeah. There was a nice shot of him at halftime. Doing that footballery thing of talking to another player. He was wearing his big overcoat. You are looking at him going, this guy's never coming out. He just knew he wasn't going to be playing a, a playing role. So we thought, I'm going to have to take over here.
3: The coaching role. Yeah,
0: I'm not fully... I'm not sure old Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane got everything... Across all the players, so I'm going to go one by one. Talk to them all. Yeah. Well, I only saw him talking to uh, to Robbie Brady, but he was doing the footballery thing of just pointing in various different directions, making it look really authoritative. This is yeah. really going to go. Robbie Brady didn't seem overly interested. He was certainly he was arguing the point that Keane was making, and Keane was sort of looking at him. Like, Robbie, I'm, I've been around for years. Yeah. Know, just just take the point. And Robbie Brady did score the goal. So yeah. Well, look. I mean, I'll I presume say that's, that's the direction that Robbie Keane was pointing.
4: That's. B- it's basically. International goal number 68, <laughs> Robbie Thompson, basically <laughs> what we're seeing here.
0: Well, he claimed that one from, uh, who was it? No <laughs> <laughs> Let's not mention that. Let's not mention that. Ooh.
3: Yeah. Well, funny how Robbie Brady only scores in the qualifiers after Robbie Keane's told him what to do. So, uh, fair enough. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're going to be playing tonight. Uh, to be honest, I thought at halftime of the game on Friday, I thought Ireland, I, I was expecting a much more difficult game. And I thought, Ireland could well win this. You know what I mean. And then obviously it didn't. It's an away game. They never do. They always find a way not to win that game. But I don't really see any reason to be to be worried about Bosnia I think we're every bit as good as them, um,
0: based on how they played on Friday. But is there not this undercurrent that they even their manager admitted afterwards that he was too cautious? It seemed like they lost. Ireland their nerve. can play a
3: lot better. You know what I mean. We, we, I mean when you when you take Daryl Murphy out of the team, and I mean not that Daryl Murphy played particularly badly, but you know. John Walters is, a, is definitely a better player. You put him in, instead of Murphy, you've maybe got Shane Long to come back in. You know, I think that's, that's an obvious area of improvement for our team. Yeah. So I don't really, I mean...
4: Yeah, interesting you didn't mention uh, O'Shea there. Mm. But it is true that we've defended really, really well, well I thought Clark, without him.
3: Clark yeah. was one of our best players. And Clark made, you know, some really important uh, interceptions, you know, in and around the six-yard box. Just really got himself in there. Was really on his game for the night you know that's good to see I mean Kyo and uh, Clark were playing pretty well together so with O'Shea kind of having had a problem with injury it depends how fit John O'Shea is yeah that's
0: it. the key question isn't it it's yeah. different Walters is coming back from suspension not that I mean, Walters is going to start regardless but if, if O'Shea was coming back from suspension maybe he'd say yeah and well, he, 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 he was also suspended the, for the game on Friday night s- sorry yeah, the, yeah but he, he has he got an injury, yeah, an injury yeah I should yeah. say and uh, whether or not he's even fully fit is a, is a big question alright that's the end of Kennedy's report on sport
4: and Randall sends it long. That's his kind of Shane Long's in behind the defense. Shane Long against Moier.
3: Randall.
4: Penalty. Hector. And there's the
3: goal. The Irenes führen with 1-0 in the 70. minute. The goal!
2: Magnifique! Porté par un public en liesse, Lirland veut croire à l'exploit grâce à son super sub, Shane Long. Shane Long. One
0: We'll get back to that game with Miguel Delaney in just a little while. But England against France will go ahead at Wembley tomorrow night. Not that it's going to be about the football there. will be a fairly emotional and emotive occasion after what happened in Paris. Simon Cooper has been living in that city, living in Paris for 13 years. And uh, you may well have read one or two of his brilliant pieces over the last few days. He was at the Stade de France and joins us now, Simon there's a narrative now that football is going to play a meaningful part in for example Ian Herbert in The Independent writes a meaningful part in stitching together the fabric of a France which finds itself so torn do you think it actually can play that sort of meaningful role?
1: Football's been very divisive in France for the last 10 years or so Um, there's an idea that the team which of course is mostly ethnic minorities that the team is Disconnected from ordinary French people. The players don't sing the Marseillaise. I was speaking to a local politician in Toulouse on Friday morning about this, just before I flew back to Paris ready for the attacks. And this woman, and many, many French people say, you know, we're fed up with the players. They don't sing the Marseillaise. They don't greet the fans as they come off the bus. And she didn't say that, but underlying that is, is, is the ethnic tensions, the feeling that these players are often black or Muslim, and they're not real French people. So, no, I'm not optimistic about the role of football in healing France. And, you know, just before the kickoff, the big story about the game was that two French players, uh, Benzema and Valbuena, were not playing because one had supposedly blackmailed the other over a sex tape. And that was seen as another kind of, you know, football scandal that discredited the national team.
3: Um. I mean, because the the big story surrounding the French national team, you know, I guess in its history was the 1998 story of the the unified team reflecting the unified France, which, judging by what you say, appears not only to have been well, sort of wishful thinking, rather uh, a fantasy that was completely the opposite of the truth.
1: Well, that team did, the team of 1998. I mean, I've, I've read, and there's a very good French sociologist, Stéphane Beau, who's written about it. And he said, look, the players in 98, football was different then. So they'd uh, spent. They'd lived in France until their early to mid 20s. Um, they'd already become, you know, husbands and fathers in France. They were not hugely paid compared with today's players. So they were more like ordinary French people. They were more like the kind of average Frenchman. So what, whatever their backgrounds, people like Zidane and Turam and Blanc and Deschamps, and also, of course, they were actually, with hindsight, a pretty impressive bunch of people as well as players. You know, they were, they, they were a mature team. They were mature guys. And so they what they did, in, I think, briefly unify France. I think we must never overestimate the role of football. Football is, is not an important thing except that it makes people happy. And, you know, what happened in the later generation, Stephane Beau explains, is players were lured abroad much earlier because the finances of the game changed. So players went abroad, often to England, as teenagers. They um, grew up in England, um, they they were rather disassociated from ordinary French people. Already by 20 or so they were multi-multi-millionaires. And there's also a sociological difference in that this generation of French players is much more likely to come from the suburbs of Paris, the poor suburbs of Paris. And they're much more likely to be, you know, children of immigrants living in those poor suburbs, which, of course, are very detached from the French mainstream. It's hard from those suburbs, often even to get a train into Paris. Connections are bad. So um, the the current Bleu are further from the French mainstream than the 1998
0: Bleu were. It sounds uh, that clearly a couple of the players have been directly affected uh, by by the tragedy on Friday the Santa Diara. His cousin was killed. Antoine Griezmann's sister was actually in the Bataclan in the concert hall, but managed... Yeah, managed to escape there. I mean, pretty horrific stuff. So there's clearly going to be a lot of emotion around the game tomorrow night, around the occasion tomorrow night. Uh, but it doesn't sound like you think there's necessarily anything can come from that. I mean, what would you like to see? This talk of maybe the English supporters singing along with the Marseillais and these kind of symbolic gestures. What would you like to see happen?
1: Well, my Financial Times colleague, Gideon Rachman, who um, is our foreign affairs commentator, suggested that the 22 players uh, mingle uh, for the national anthem so it's not the french on the one side and the english on the other but that the players mix up and stand in a line of 22 to show that you know all these stupid arguments over brexit and all these silly political arguments that we have all the time which are fair and, you know it's fair enough to to have different views on policy that's fine but that um you know, we, we all get along pretty well, us Europeans. You know, we travel to each other's countries all the time. Paris is now a twin city of London. You know, sometimes I drop off my kids at school, and then, you know, two hours later, I'm having coffee. Well, three hours later, I'm having coffee with somebody in London. We're incredibly close and related, and I think the football match on Tuesday should acknowledge that and show that, that um, actually we're pretty damn good friends. Simon, what players can do that.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great suggestion. You wrote brilliantly from the stadium on Friday night. I'm just wondering what the weekend has been like for you and for people in Paris.
1: You know, I read this stuff saying Parisians are defiant, Parisians decided it's not going to change their way of life. Maybe, you know, we're all—I would think—above all, incredibly confused. We we don't know what on earth is going on. We don't know how we feel. We're also those of us with children. We're trying to be um, positive and calm for the children. And if, as a journalist, I'm running around, you know, pumped up with adrenaline all the time. And then occasionally, I was having breakfast with a friend, an American who was visiting. And then um, I began to cry at the end of breakfast. And so there are these moments that you you just let yourself go and you think of these people who died. And one of them was a just read about a French football journalist I know who was shot in the Bataclan, was killed in the Bataclan. I want to mention his name, Christophe Lelouch. And um, you know, so sometimes you just you just collapse, and at other times you you put it aside. I mean, I was out at Republique on Sunday. And people were skateboarding, people were enjoying the sun, Uh, people were all out there together having a great time. So we don't have a fixed reaction. We have reactions that change by the hour. I mean, shortly after I was on the République, there was a mass stampede because people thought wrongly that there was shooting.
0: Yeah. How have your kids dealt? You mentioned your kids there, Simon. How have they dealt with things?
1: Um, Worryingly, calmly. And I say worryingly because my daughter said to me, uh, it was much worse in January when the Charlie Hebdo attack happened. And she said, now we're sort of used to it. And I think she's assimilating the idea that terrorist attacks happen in our neighborhood because so many of these cafes are in our neighborhood. Terrorist attacks happen in your neighborhood, and that sometimes happens, and you just move on. And I suppose that's what children in dangerous places do. I don't think Paris is a dangerous place. I'd also like to point out. That Paris, even in 2015, this horrible year, is going to have probably fewer murders by the end of the year than New York City, which is, you know, the safest big city in America, and which is safer than it's been for 50 years. And New York City last year had 328 murders. In Paris, we're going to end up probably with substantially fewer than that, even after this massacre. So, look, we are not the most dangerous place, even in the West.
3: There's a sense, though, with this that um, the sense of the, the encroachment uh, into previous spaces which maybe previously people thought of as safe. I mean, you mentioned. Uh, in your piece, uh, one of your pieces of the weekend, that for 14 years I've sat through major sports events expecting a terrorist attack, most of all during the London Olympics of 2012. Big sports matches are the most watched TV programs and therefore irresistible to terrorists. I've always sort of thought the same thing about them, but on the other hand, um, as far as I know, the the attempt on Friday was was pretty much the first time that someone had, act- had attempted to do that. I mean, why do you think it is that these the, um, targets haven't haven't been attacked before. I mean, it seems as though maybe the symbolism of attacking a crowd that had that gathered to watch sport doesn't really work for anybody, or at least we thought it didn't.
1: We thought it didn't. It worked for ISIS. Actually, before the World Cup 1998, France at that time was dealing with Algerian terrorism, and this Algerian terrorist group had planned very similar attacks. I think on uh, particularly on an England game, because England were a very high-profile team at the time, uh, Beckham was just coming through, and so the Algerians were going to blow up one of the England games and the and the US game. And this plot was foiled again. It was a Franco-Belgian plot, the Algerians in France and Belgium, and this plot was foiled by the security services. So I think uh, also, obviously, the security services are much more active around these tournaments. And that that helps, and uh, you know there is strong security controls. I mean, I went into the Stade de France. I was searched somewhat cursorily, Um, the guy looked in my bag as I went in, um, as they look into anyone's bag, but, you know, if you're wearing a suicide vest, I think you will be spotted, and that is what happened to the guy who uh, came up to the East Gate in a security, in a a suicide vest. What happened is that the security guard, who we know is called Zuhair, which means he was a Muslim himself, or nominal Muslim himself searched the guy, said, look, you're wearing a suicide vest, at which point the suicide bomber steps back and blows himself up. So uh, he definitely had a ticket. I suspect the other two may have tried to get into the game as well and failed. So, yes, there is tight security, but uh, one only needs one lapse.
0: Simon, so, mean, it maybe it's be too early to talk about this, but re- with regards to Euro 2016, even it is the fear of the fact that something could happen, or the fear of the idea that something could happen enough of uh, enough of a, a genuine fear that it could potentially ruin what the tournament is supposed to be, even if, touch wood, nothing remotely uh, remotely bad or remote, remotely terrorist-related happens. Just the idea that that fear is hanging over it, does that make it a problematic for you to think about in any way enjoying that, that football
1: tournament? Uh, right now, I struggle to look forward to Euro 2016, and I'm sure the French authorities feel the same. I'm sure they wish now that they had lost the bid and Italy or Turkey had won it. But... I mean, it was similar after the after the New York attacks of 2001. Uh, five months later were the Salt Lake City Olympics. And remember, the New York attacks were bigger by a factor of 15 or 20 in terms of victims than the Paris attacks. So everyone thought, my gosh, how is Salt Lake going to cope? And yes, there was massive security. I wasn't at those Olympics, but I gather it was okay. You know, people had a reasonably good time. So let's hope that... Um, that, that by June, there will be massive security. It, every stadium will be like an armed camp. But let's hope that by June we can all have fun together. And, you know, I saw you guys drew against Bosnia. You know, I haven't, I haven't been able to watch or care about football, but I happen to see you guys drew 1-1 in Bosnia, so you're probably going to make it. I hope you're here. I hope the Northern Irish come in large numbers and the Welsh and so on. And it could be huge fun. It could be, it could be just massive fun. This is the best country in the world to visit. Um, every day that you live in France is a gift and I've been telling myself that for the 13 years I've spent here and um, please everybody just come and, and, and have a great time
0: Alright well Simon I know it's obviously an emotional time for you so thanks very much for taking the time and chatting to us
1: Thank you the flame hair flame hair, flame of Mr Mr Ken
3: every so often I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite someone John Hayes I'm talking about I'm. Yeah. John Hayes now I always thought that was ridiculous he had won the victory over himself he loved Brendan Rogers that's where it comes from thanks a lot perfect
0: fair to
3: say anybody could have managed those guys no of course
0: not let me show
4: you right now for you give
0: it up okay brilliant stuff from Simon there I think a couple of interesting points there. One, he disputed this idea that we've been reading about over the last 24 hours or so that Paris, The Parisians have gone out and reclaimed their city and it's all defiant. He said, actually, it's mostly confused and people still really trying to come to terms with what happened. And with regards to the football side of things, it seems to me that, Kenny's not he's not ruling out the idea that football can in some way be a, a bam, but, and that and the France 98 story, for example, does seem incredible and he thinks they did make an impact, but this particular French team are not a loved team. So mm. therefore there it's maybe just not the right time for a football team to be being put forward or a football match to be being being put forward as being in some way capable of making a difference.
3: No, I mean it isn't really capable of making a difference and especially not when that responsibility is foisted on it, you know, it's it's too much to it's too much to carry like I mean it's it's kind of like a triv- basically trivial event. Is it
0: right to go is it right that it goes ahead do you think? I Even think for so. symbolic value if that's the right term.
3: I think so. I think it I think it is. I mean, I can't think yeah. of a I can't think of a, good, of a good reason to cancel it.
4: It goes ahead for the same reason the French people are going to work this morning. Hmm. You know, that that's What else are you going to yeah, do Yeah, what else are you going to do? That's that, that's basically and I think there's a an element of uh, of just getting on with it. That's, that that has to happen in all facets of life and sport shouldn't be any different. Let's
0: talk in bosnia with Miguel Delaney, Miguel. I'm going to put it to you that that late goal we conceded maybe wasn't the worst thing in the world in the first leg that w- whatever about and Martin O'Neill's making these noises about attacking and not sitting back. I don't know how much we believe about that but certainly if we had gone into the second leg with a 1-0 lead I would have thought that would have led us to be even more conservative than we may be with the one all draw.
2: Um, Yeah, possibly. and I mean, it, it, this may come down to the makeup of the two teams as, mu- um, as much as the circumstances of the game. I mean, the one thing about I, th- I thought the Bosnians themselves were very conservative in the first game compared to how we usually see them. I mean, we he was interviewed Begovic in the build-up to the uh, to the first leg, and he was saying how their natural game, what they love to do, is attack. And um, what they're trying to teach themselves to be more disciplined uh, because they leave so many holes to back, and you could see that in the way that they put an extra centre half in in the first game and kind of rearranged their midfield, almost took away some of that fluency. And they, they were slightly disjointed. I think maybe it was why they they looked so poor in the first leg. So today, I think we might will probably because they have to score. We could see them much more gung ho, but that could leave huge spaces open in the back, which began which began to become apparent even in the first leg. Mm-hmm. So, um, in, in in that sense, like it's, it's one of those games where, in all senses, the balance zone was really difficult to strike, and, and the away goal kind of puts this massive shadow on things throughout because. You know, not only does Neil ha have to judge whether to, to go at a Bosnian side who could be open to back, but then have have such an, you know, if they, if they click of such an excellent strike course, but then there's also this whole mental dilemma of protecting what you have or trying to build on it.
3: Yeah. I mean, I have to say that I was not impressed by Bosnia in the first leg at all. I wonder, did you get the impression that the Fog hindered them more than it did us or, or was it really a, a factor in the game It's definitely a factor if you're watching the game you could not see half the game Robbie Brady's goal was invisible um, <laughs> did it really affect um, what was happening on the, on the pitch do you think?
2: Uh, not in the first half I don't think it was only in the second really that it came really bad in 50 minutes I think in the, but in the first half I was initially a little bit frightened by what they can do to us but then it kind of quickly became apparent that they were really dependent on our mistakes rather than actually making things happen themselves I mean, the only player that was, um, that was really getting any sort of re-penetrating really was uh, the right-winger, Visha. But he, he, even that, he usually kind of came to not, And he, he almost personified the Bosnian team. There was always the suggestion that they could do a bit more, but it wasn't really happening. And, but, I mean, Owen mentioned there whether the actual the goal was a good thing for us. I'm not sure, because I think it was almost like the minute we scored, something in them clicked as well, and they were suddenly much more focused uh, they weren't concerned about our, our long balls, which apparently is the reason the manager made the change in the first place to, to his first eleven in the first game. Even if we didn't actually play that many long balls in the match itself. But it, it was almost like our goal freed them a little as well. Um, and, and after the game, we, we talked to Begovic as well a bit, and he was saying that that could be the, the key moment of the tie because it restores their confidence. But you know, they, they, seem, they seem a bit fragile as well.
3: Yeah, obviously. I mean, what, what, so we've got a couple of players coming back into contention now. Uh, Shane, uh, John Walters, obviously. Shane Long might be fit. John O'Shea probably going to be fit. Um, how many of these, if any, should come back into the team?
2: I would expect a, a, at least two. And I think this, it, it's something that also puts maybe a different spin in the match as well. Because, I mean, I, I obviously didn't think we were that great on Friday. From what we could see through the fog, uh, particularly in terms of keeping possession, but yet despite all that, and despite uh, the key players we were missing, we were only a few minutes away from recording what, what would have been probably our best ever away res- or best away result since Scotland '87, and that's despite missing our defensive leader in John O'Shea, who he, even if he is in the way, and still you know has a, that, that u- has a huge importance at the back in terms of his influence, and John Walters probably be- because of the way we play has possibly become one of our most important players, even in the way he gets those key goals. And, and I mean, even you could see it on Friday, the way without Walters, we didn't quite have the same hustle or, or effect in terms of doing da- damage from set pieces as we might have. Uh, so, yeah, I would expect both to come straight back in. And O'Neill has said he'll give long until a minute and a half before kickoff to decide where he's fit. Um, he, he might be a bit shakier, but, yeah, I mean... But I think that, that could change things for us as well and and it is encouraging that we came so close to a result like that despite missing players of such importance.
3: Yeah, we've actually got a very strong defence really when you look at it, which is which is bizarre. You know, because um you know you've got Clark who's a or Kyle rather who's a championship player, Clark relatively inexperienced at this level, Ward who who isn't really playing club football at all. And yet some they have managed to, I mean, Ireland have faced all of the top strikers in qualifying. They faced mm-hmm. Lewandowski, Thomas Muller, they're the two top scorers. Then there's Zlatan, and then there's Eden Dzeko. Now Lewandowski and Dzeko did manage to score against us. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, our defensive record has been, it, it, our defensive record is the reason why yeah. we might be about to, to go to the European Championships.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I, it, was like, it was something that struck me about uh, an hour into the game. Uh, cause to be honest, I was kind of writing a fairly critical piece. Cause I thought we were, we'd been so bad in midfield, and then kind of one of these kind of the flashes. I think <laughs> it's, it's time to cut a bit of slack because even though there's so many games, where we just look so easy to play through. We're kind of a, you know a superior opposition, a technically superior opposition side, are just playing through. It look like they can score at will, and yet they don't. Uh, it's almost a contradiction. we you know we're easy to play through, but were so hard to beat. And that, that isn't coincidence. That, that's not us, get, like, us getting lucky from opposition sides missing chances, because we do seem to limit them. And again, Begovic kind of was enthusing about it after the match as well, saying, he basically said, we have to learn that discipline and resilience that Ireland have. And I mean, I know we've often kind of... Um, try to d- 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 dismiss all the old cliches about Irish spirit and passion, especially when like the likes of Yogi Lowe, it's the only thing he can say about Ireland when he's asked in a pre-match press conference. <laughs> but there's, there, probably, there is a lot to it. And, and the defence, I mean, for, for all that our midfield was pulled, was pulled out of shape in the first half, our defence wasn't. It, it kept it lying really well. Uh, there was a, good, a re- really good cohesion between uh, Kyo and, and, and that's And that's been a feature of the campaign, despite the fact... That the defence actually been has, has been chopped around a lot throughout.
0: The fact that we just don't know, though, you've mentioned some of the changes that could happen, whether O'Shea comes back. I there's there's a lot. Of Stephen Ward at left back. Mm. If Walters comes straight in for Murphy up front, or whether he comes in on, on the wing and you stick with Murphy, whatever way it happens, should th- does this actually reflect quite well on Martin O'Neill? That for all the uh, comment about him being an innately conservative manager, so maybe certainly as he's gotten older and more experienced as a manager, he, he might have lost that freewheeling attitude he had earlier on in his career. We still have never have a clue what team he's going to be.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and, and despite that, there, the one constant is that there is this core competitiveness, competitiveness to the side. I mean, it was something else I was thinking of after the match. That I mean, you like wondering about what, what O'Neill has given us in that sense. But if you look at, say, the last 10 years, despite, I'd say, the quality of the squad staying, staying quite constant... You know, under Staunton, we were ripped apart regularly. Uh, Trapatoni initially re- respo- restored that competitiveness, except in the last campaign, you could see the way, you know, teams are beginning to cut us open at will again. And it, it even maybe started just before qualifying for year 2012 with the way Russia we should have beaten us about 4-0. But o- O'Neill has given us, that, he's given us that solidity back. That kind of, it, it, I think it's probably the best, other than defensive organisation, it's probably the best thing he's given to the team. And again, that's something that runs through his career. I mean, anyone he talked to who's played on it would say, what he was excellent at that, was this kind of uh, individual motivation that, as Ken said, puts on the, puts on the brink of what would be what, our, our sixth qualification ever.
0: Is it going to be? Are we going to go through?
2: Um, I'm a lot more confident uh, than I was before the first leg, and not just because of the away goal. Because I, I don't think there's too much to buzz in you. My one slight fear is actually just the context of ties like this. That if they if they score, which can happen in a second, I think they they have obviously go, got good strikers. Then we get into that situation where I mean we've seen it so often in, in club European ties where you're at home, there's tw- half an hour to go, and you gonna you can maybe bring it extra time or whatever, but just hanging over the entire tie is the fear of, the, of that second away goal. And it almost kind of conditions the team more than what the opposition can do because I don't think they're capable of doing all that much despite having Pjanic and Dzeko. Uh, so that would be my greatest fear. But uh, maybe 51-49 will go through.
0: All right, listen, Miguel, enjoy it. All right, cheers. Let's go back to my controversial theory, again. that mm-hmm. <laughs> we were better off conceding that late goal in the first leg. Just in terms of mindset, that if we were going in one nil ahead, <laughs> we would not be doing very much attacking. No, we would. We would be sitting back Unrightly on that one nil so. lead, and even at one all, there's a danger that we'll do that. Although I do think that the crowd involvement, the the fact that this will be a huge atmosphere, everyone talks about home advantage, but in most games it doesn't really matter because the crowd isn't that much. On top of Ireland international games, the crowd doesn't get that involved unless a lot of things are going on. But tonight should be one of those occasions where, from the start, it's really going to be quite intense. So. Maybe we'll be shaken out of any potential conservative conservatism just by the nature of the atmosphere.
3: Maybe, maybe by the fact well. that, you know, what is there to be afraid of, really? Might as well just go and try and win the game. You know, it's like they've got a great chance. They're up against the team. They're definitely capable of beating. Yeah, I mean, if... if Why not do it?
4: Yeah, if, if, uh, if we're taking great heart from how poor Bosnia were on Friday, you can only imagine what the players are saying to each other. Yeah. Uh, having been nearly convinced... For the ever since the draw was made people got more and more pessimistic about about Bosnia and then you go out and play against them and say right well there's actually not a lot here to be afraid of yeah. maybe Pjanic and uh, Dzeko will turn up tonight and all the rest but I am I mean- a bit
0: worried about that though I just think there is this idea that we're uh, this Bosnia team we're pretty much on the same level as them but none of us believe that was the case before Friday night I think there just might be more room for improvement from them
3: we're now in the position exactly yeah, but the we've, same. We,
4: have, but we will have a much better team at this. This yeah. one of which we're in exactly
3: the true. same position. Poland were in against us. Um, they it's exactly the same setup really. A two-all draw or better Bosnia, puts Bosnia through, and you know any kind of win or low-scoring draw puts us through. Poland were able to do it. Um, they were really, really nervous for a lot of that game. <laughs> uh, they were very nervous, but what they managed to do, Owen, is injure Shane Long. Uh, strategically, uh, quite an early point in the second half. So all I'm saying is, um, old titanium ankles. Have we learned? Jekko, have,
4: what have we learned from our qualifying campaign thus far? Yeah. What have we learned, particularly from that last game? Have we learned you, anything? You
3: look at the best, you know, the likes of Poland, and you try to take from them. After a couple of minutes of that game, one of their central defenders jumped up behind Shendong, kneeed him in the uh, on the tailbone. Mm. Uh, and that kind of thing went on for a while until eventually he departed the field on a stretcher mm. early in the second half. And with him, vanished uh, much of Ireland's <laughs> counter-attacking threat. Now, football is a contact sport. Um, All of
4: Europe has basically been saying that, you know, the Irish team, very physical team, huge team, huge <laughs> men. Uh, so we try to
3: turn it into a fight. <laughs> why
4: don't we live up to the expectation of our European brethren tonight? That's not, I'm, I'm telling you, Ken, that's not a bad idea. That might be the best idea you've ever had. Just a
0: quick reminder that our book, our brand new book, is out later this week and plenty of time to get one for Christmas for the second captain's loving loved one in your life, which might just be you, given that you're the person listening to the podcast <laughs> right now. So buy one for yourself or tell somebody to buy it for Christmas you as a present.
4: Christmas is not just about giving, it's also about receiving. Tricky. So why don't you give yourself a present of yeah. the second captain's book and you will receive that at a time between now and Christmas. So Pre- happy
0: Christmas to you. <laughs> pre-order the second captain sports annual volume one on secondcaptains.com we'll have another podcast out today which will not have too much good news in it well certainly uh, with regards to the rugby won't have too much good news in it Leinster's terrible terrible defeat yesterday against Wasps is going to feature pretty heavily in that one predictions for tonight Let's just before we go
3: we're going through Um, I'll say 7-1 to Bosnia okay
0: (laughs) thank you for that Ken addition thanks to you
4: 1-0 Ireland I'll take nil. And all an extraordinarily items. nervous last twenty minutes. <laughs> all right, thanks
0: very much, guys. Thank you all. Thanks zero. for listening Thank you, Enjoy the game. <laughs> <How was> it? <laughs> That's the second time it's gone off. Oh, they never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those
1: those those boys.